I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. It's hard to believe, but it's true, that The Twelve Tribes of Hattie is Uyana Mathis's first novel. Its setting is Philadelphia. Over the course of five decades, this powerful book tells a story of Hattie, a strong, complicated woman whose difficult life takes its toll on her and her children. When I read it, the characters just leapt from the pages, and I knew almost instantly that this would be our next book club selection. Iana Mathis grew up in Philadelphia, the daughter of a single mother, who instilled in her a fierce love of reading. By the time she was nine, Ayana began writing stories of her own. She says, words have been dear companions to her all her life. Eventually, her talent led her to the prestigious Iowa Writers Workshop. It's an institution whose graduates include a multitude of poet laureates, Pulitzer Prize, and National Book Award winners. It was there in that story place that she conceived and wrote The Twelve Tribes of Hattie. Well, thank you all for joining me. I am so happy to have our book club author, Ayana Mathis, here with us on Super Soul Sunday. So happy about this book. I think that I feel strongly that you're one of the next big voices. Oh, you you are you. indeed. And I can't believe that this is your first book. Yeah, that's, sometimes I can't quite either, but it is. And I started slowing myself down in the latter chapters. When I got to Bell, I started slowing myself down because I knew it was going to come to an end and I didn't want it to the end. The best compliment a writer can get, yes. really. You start, I started reading more slowly and taking my time mm. because I didn't want it to end. Mm. How, did, how did this come about? I had been working on a completely different book, I thought. Um, I'm sort of new to fiction writing, which is mm -hmm. very strange. And I had been working on what I thought was going to be a memoir, a fictionalized memoir. And it was dreadful with a big capital D and, and awkward and strange. And I took it into, I had gotten accepted to graduate school to the Iowa Writers Workshop and I took it into my first workshop. The, uh, let's say the Iowa Writers <laughs> Workshop, where all writers wish to be accepted. It's a wonderful, it's a really yeah. wonderful yeah. generative place. And the whole point is to help you become a better writer. Exactly. Yes. So you sort of, you sit there, people have read your manuscript already, and you're silent while you're being workshopped is what we mm -hmm. call it. Um, so you're sort of taking notes and everyone is making comments about your work and et cetera. And it's very uh, humbling. <laughs> it can be um, enormously fruitful in terms of being a learning experience. It can also be sort of devastating. It's, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of your heart kind of out there yes, on the table and everyone's sort of poking at it. You know? your, your words, yes. <laughs> yeah. So I, so I brought it in, uh, feedback from my classmates was sort of middling, mm. but fine. And then Marilyn Robinson, who um, is, was leading my workshop. Pulitzer Prize winning Marilyn Robinson, Gilead. Yes, Gilead and housekeeping. Yes. And housekeeping. Yes. And so, so she sort of waits, she tends to wait until everyone's finished talking and then she makes her comments. So there's a little silence because everyone could tell Marilyn was about to speak. And Marilyn said, well, it is true that the characters are insufficiently complex to the situation in which you've placed them. Now, insufficiently might, complex. Insufficiently complex. Now that might not sound that bad. Yes. But if you are a writer and I write entirely from character that is sort of start to finish kind of what I believe, I really believe that I'm putting a person on a page. 
that is one of the worst things that you could ever possibly hear. That insufficiently complex? Insufficiently complex. Okay. Um, and that is, Marilyn is ever gracious. And so she, she sort of puts things that way and you, you, you kind of read into you it. Interpreted you interpreted that to mean Ooh. <laughs> not good enough, bottom line. Yeah, yes. and the characters weren't. They, mm -hmm. weren't. they weren't fleshed out enough. There was something very superficial about the work on that fictionalized memoir. So I had a big kind of um, crisis about it, a real crisis, a kind of like, what am I doing here? Why like, am I at this workshop? Like I can't ugly write. cry crisis? Oh, ugly cry crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Massively ugly cry, yeah, cry yeah, crisis. Yeah. Um, for a couple of weeks, um, even though I knew she was right, because she was yes, right. Yes, yes. And then I thought, okay, well, either I'm gonna stay here and, and figure this out, or I'm gonna go back to New York. And obviously I wasn't gonna go back to New York. So I thought, well, I'll write some short stories. And I, so I started writing these short stories, and the first short story that I wrote was a kind of strange hybrid of the first chapter in my book, Philadelphia and Jubilee, mm -hmm. and the last chapter, Sala. Very different from the way they appear in the novel, but a kind of hybrid. And I brought that into class, and it, and it changed everything. Marilyn's whole sort of reaction to it was different. My classmates' reaction to it was different. And for myself, I knew that there was something right about it. It's not what ended up in the book, but I knew that I was on the right track. That's why I love you great writers, because you sort of, you conjure magic through words. I just, I'm fascinated that they just, you know, the characters kept appearing. And where are they? They're... Where are they? I don't. I, it's, are it's, they in it's the a, ether? They're in your head, obviously. They, they're in my they're head. coming through. They're coming through from something. It's a very mysterious thing. You know, I, I've never been a writer that sort of talks about channeling things. Yes, you know, writers yeah. will say, oh, and I felt taken over by the muse and I channeled. My writing process tends to be that every word is a horrible struggle. <laughs> but, but when I look back on the work collectively, I will find phrases or sentences that I couldn't say exactly where that came from. Um, and I feel sort of the same about, about the characters in general. I think Hattie is, uh, my own grandparents were great migration people. Yes. And so Hattie is very loosely inspired by my grandmother. She's not like her because Hattie is much sort of um, harsher and rageful in certain ways than my own grandmother mm -hmm. was. But certainly they share, um, they share this, this migratory history and they share also um, having been, I think, very, very heroic women. So ultimately, this is a story of the great migration yes. of our people yes. from the South to the North. Absolutely. There was a period of decades where people were just, you know, my mother mm. and my cousins and my mm. aunts were all a part of that great migration Something. from Mississippi to Milwaukee to Chicago, exactly. you know, and everybody has family members that came Everybody who's up here has family members You're who down were down there, there and, and at some point moved up here. Yeah. And that really is the story. It's astounding when I think about, you know, I mean, people came with nothing. Certainly people were in different circumstances when they left the South. Yes. But there were so many people that came with a, a, an address scribbled on a piece of paper, you know, mm -hmm. a few dollars mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. a pocket, enough food to sort of last whatever, however long the journey might have been. And, it, and these people refounded they very much refounded a nation in the north and it, it's astonishing you say on page 10 oh my gosh mm. <laughs> you write like velvet uh hattie clambered from the train her skirt still hemmed with georgia mud the dream of philadelphia round as a marble in her mouth and the fear of it a needle in her chest and everybody who got off those trains who got off those buses i mean i hadn't thought of it in that way before and I mm. you know read many stories on the migration mm -hmm. um, 
the Promised Land mm -hmm. years ago, and uh, that beautiful book that caused you to have the epiphany. The warmth of other suns. The warmth of other suns. A thousand cheers to Isabel Wilkerson, who's yes. amazing and a genius. And yes, but uh, when you think of it, mm -hmm. when you think of the thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are coming up yeah. from the South yeah. with this hope and this desire for a better life and not really knowing what they're stepping into when they're stepping off those trains with their, okay. you know, Sound. with their chicken sandwiches and deviled eggs in the box and mm -hmm. all that, you know? Absolutely yeah. unfathomable. I mean, it, there's a, it's a, not, not to sort of wax grand, but, but it, I think it's appropriate. There's a, there's a Martin Luther King quote that says, um, the, the arc of human history is long, but it bends toward moral justice. And there is something about that bending and that mm -hmm. moral justice that I think speaks deeply to what is, whatever it is that's inside us that is, uh, that is divine. Yes. And, and I don't mean necessarily divine. I don't mean it in a Christian sense. I don't mean it in I'm, a, but mean I mean divine. whatever. The, yeah, exactly. The bigger, the bigger, exactly. with the, the bigger, bigger D. With a big, big old D. <laughs> <laughs> whatever it is. That includes that, all of your religions and all of your dogma absolutely. and doctrine and all of that. Absolutely. It includes it all. Exactly. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, I often will just sort of simply call it humanity, which has come to be kind of a word that we, that we sort of How downplay. About life? I like but, life. I yeah, like life. Yeah, also. You life. Know? Mm -hmm. This mingled, strange, powerful, muscled thing. Why did you choose? How, you're, you're 39 years old. How'd you know about this? Uh, I read a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and I think also a, a real sense of the past was mm -hmm. always very present with me. And I think partially because of my mother's age. And because also my grandparents who were quite old, they never talked about the South. It was never a part of anyone's discussion. But you know, there's it's sort of in the ether. There's a there's a sensibility about things that I think was transmitted yeah, to me. Absolutely, it's the reason why in this um, amazing review in the New York Times. I mean, I would say review is unbelievable. Unbelievable, unbelievable. by Mashiko Kakatani, who doesn't like a lot of things. Yeah. And to get a review like this in New York Times. I nearly wept for you. I, I, I was shaking when I was reading, like, okay, and then that paragraph, and now that paragraph. <laughs> but what she says about you, Ms. Mathis has a gift for imbuing her character stories with an epic dimension that recalls Toni Morrison's writing. And I know you and I both bow at the altar of Toni, Toni Morrison. And her sense of time and place and family will remind some of Louise Erdrich, but her elastic voice is thoroughly her own. Wow. Wow. Mm. <laughs> your mother, I know she's been a great driving force in your life. Tell us about her. My mother is extraordinary. She's 79 now, um, and which, which is wonderful. And, and one of the strange. most read people you know, you told my producer. My mother's incredibly well. She's better, in the classics specifically, I think she's better read than I am. And she's just extraordinary. She's, um, she's, um, I don't know. I, it's hard to begin to describe her because she's so particularly herself. She's a very moral person, mm -hmm. which, which I feel like the word moral has come to be kind of a bad thing. But mm -hmm. I mean it um, in the sense of a person who tends toward good. To do the really right thing. Honestly. Mm -hmm. and, and not only to do the right thing, but to think the right thing, mm -hmm. which is really something, you mm -hmm. know, because we, it's easy to sort of make a show sometimes mm -hmm. of doing the right thing. But to think the right thing mm -hmm. is really something. Um, she was always extraordinarily encouraging of, of my writing. Like when I was a little girl, she was deeply encouraging. Um, and we, I grew up 
uh, with, we had very, 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 very little money when I was growing up. And when I went to high school, I was able to sort of test into a, a good high school. But when I was in elementary and middle school, um, I couldn't test into a school. So it was neighborhood schools or bust kind of thing, public school. And so my mother, I think, endured really a lot of sacrifices in sort of mm -hmm. living in neighborhoods where we couldn't really pay the rent mm -hmm. and was given the, so the financial support. So she gave you what she had. Yeah. She gave me everything that she had, mm -hmm. and what she had was an awfully lot. Yeah, I'm not going to get into it because I know you don't want to talk about it because mm -hmm. you said you wrote a definitive piece in Glamour about your mother's, your experience with your mother's mental illness. I just mm -hmm. want to say I know about it. So for everybody's like, why didn't you ask her? Did you get <laughs> I know about it. Mm -hmm. You don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. I respect that. Thank you. I loved what you said about Lawrence on page 74. This is when you know who is going away with him. Lawrence wasn't a man who got hung up on ideals or lofty sentiment. He had lived pragmatically as far as his emotions were concerned. He had a car, nice suits, and he had only infrequently worked for white men. He left his family behind in Baltimore when he was 16, and he built himself up from nothing without any help from anyone. And if he'd not been able to save his mother from becoming a mule, at least he'd never been one himself. For most of his life, this had seemed like the most important thing, not to be anybody's mule. Mm. I just think that young people reading this will get a sense of history mm. in a way that perhaps maybe they, they don't know or have experienced. Mm. Did you feel a, sense, a, a great sense of responsibility in writing this because you knew that this would be another one of those books that would carry the story, <laughs> the story, the great migration story, <laughs> our story, our family story mm. forward. I did, I did, I felt, um, it, it's one of the, the, the ways in which also character comes in, mm -hmm. because once I really understood that this is what this was about, mm -hmm. I wanted to be, I wanted to give these people um, as much, sort of breadth as I possibly could. And I wanted to basically write a novel about the kind of pre-civil rights world with a post-civil rights sensibility. So the arc of the novel, you know, so, so you start in the 1920s and then you end in the 1980s. And one of the things that I had hoped to accomplish is that as the time moves forward and mm -hmm. as the characters get further and further away from the move from the South, mm -hmm. the sources of their problems become less specific to race, and though they are certainly informed by race, clearly. Yes. Um, but they are also, they also begin to have these sort of wider kind of human problems. And that was sort of done on purpose, I think, because I wanted them to be, I, I really do think that one of the great scopes of the Great Migration, and also one of the great scopes of, of the Civil Rights Movement, was for black people, for us to have our humanity. And our humanity means that we do not have to be defined solely by race. It does not mean that it has to be a complete identity. It doesn't mean, it means Correct. that we are allowed a breadth and a scope and a largeness. And I hope yeah. that my, my attempt was that as the characters move further away, that, they, that their, their difficulties and strengths would expand in a, in a certain kind of way. Wow, you said that beautifully. Oh. But there's some people who are still even attached to it. You, th yeah. you think you still have to be completely defined by yeah. it. Yes. Yeah. May I say, it is literature. So anybody who loves words and language will appreciate it. I was so stunned when I first did The Bluest Eye mm. as a book club selection and the multitude of women all over the world, all different races and colors who responded to Picola Breedlove's story. I thought it was just a black woman's story, but it was it's really, 
every woman's I mean, but that's, story. Isn't that what yes. great literature does? And that's, and that's what, what, yeah. You know, that's what is wonderful about books. Yes. You know, it's what, it's what is wonderful about books. The characters seem so real to me. I said this to you when I interviewed you for uh, O Magazine. Mm. I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would say, God, I wonder where Floyd is. Is he out there? Is he, is he, what's he doing? And Floyd. then I'd realize, there, okay, there is no Floyd. That's just a character. Okay, forget <laughs> about that. Go back to sleep. Uh, you got into their souls. Mm. You really did. Where did that come from? How does one get into the soul of a character? That's a very hard question. Um, I think it has to do very much with intention. Um, I think that one of the things, or perhaps the thing that I think is most important about my job as a novelist, if, if that is my job, which I now suppose I consider it to be. Um, <laughs> um, Are you just now letting that, yourself feel that fully? Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah just now. Yeah. Um, is, you are a novelist. I, I really think that I am. Like, I think that this is my life's work, and I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to have discovered it. Wow. Um, but I do, I do honestly believe it's my life's work. Um, but I think that in, in terms of intention, what I understand to be my job is to put a real fleshed out dimensional human being on a page. And there is no other way to do that than to channel into that human being as deeply as you possibly can. I, I wouldn't know any other way to go about it. And my interest in creating character is to spend as much time as humanly possible inside their minds. Mm -hmm. And in that way, I can begin to understand them more and they can begin to seem full and real. So they me. do become real to you, yeah, the characters, so. just yeah, as absolutely. they become real to us, absolutely. us yeah. the reader. Absolutely. Do they dictate what happens to them or do you? It's funny you should say that, and we mentioned Toni Morrison earlier. Toni Morrison has a funny, I'm going to sort of misquote her, but she says yeah. something to the effect of, you know, at times you have to say to a character, listen, pipe down. <laughs> I'm writing this book, not you. Uh -huh. um, and, so, and, and I think um, I think there were sort of moments when I had an, an experience where I, I thought the character was sort of going off the rails or taking going into places where I didn't want them to go. Inspired by Iyana's grandmother, Hattie is strong and mysterious and complicated, and her force is felt on every single page of this novel. So I think also Hattie was a way to sort of imagine what my grandmother would have been like. And she was very hard to read, my grandmother, very yeah, stoic, so was mine. super enig enigmatic. Yes, I love, I love, um, what the New York Times uh, says, about, she, she writes that Hattie knew her children did not think her a kind woman. Perhaps she wasn't, but there hadn't been time for sentiment when they were young. Mm. She had failed them in vital ways, but what good would it have done to spend the days hugging and kissing if there hadn't been anything to put in their bellies? I think that's essentially that generation, right? Yeah, I think it is. They didn't understand that all the love she had was taken up with feeding them and clothing them and preparing them to meet the world. The world would not love them. The world would not be kind. Mm -hmm. And that to me is the essence of who she was. Really? Yeah. It really Isn't is. It? Because she's a deeply loving woman. She loves those children. Yes. And she, but she just, she really honestly thinks that she would be doing them an enormous disservice if she coddled them. And she also doesn't have time. She yeah. really is actually quite busy making mm -hmm. sure that these kids don't starve to death or that more of them don't die. Yeah, it, it's everything. She and I has. think there's a whole generation yeah. of people who were raised Absolutely. that way. Absolutely. Yeah. And I also think that Hattie is very, um, 
I wanted her to be, I think we have a lot of stereotypes about what strength is. Yes. And we have a lot of stereotypes, particularly when we talk about um, black women's strength, you know, yes, which is yes. this sort of like iron-willed person who just plows through no matter yes. what, who doesn't doubt, who isn't afraid, who isn't all of these things that are, of course, enormously human to be. Yes. And so I wanted this woman to be strong. I don't think anyone could deny that Hattie is very, very strong, but she's also deeply flawed. She's also afraid. She's also vulnerable. She also suffers from doubt. She suffers from so many things. I wanted to sort of grant her a kind of fuller humanity. Obviously, when you finish the book, you know what the 12 tribes of Hattie means in terms of this book, but where did the title come from? Isn't it biblical? It is. It yeah. is. Uh, it's a direct reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. Yes. Um, and I was very interested in these kinds of uh, metaphors of delivery from bondage and things mm -hmm. like that, because I think the book is a lot about nation building yes. as well. Mm -hmm. And so that metaphor seemed particularly apt. What was the first book you loved? The first book that I loved, like when I was a kid yeah, or like later? first book later? you loved. Then we can oh. get to later. First book you loved as a kid. First book that I loved, I think it's a tie. There is um, A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lengel, which I kind of still love. <laughs> and uh, I read it when I was, I don't know, I must have been like eight or something. And the other one is Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. And oh, I, cannot I love that remember. too. So I just remember weeping. I remember reading it and being just sort of... Just like my whole body yes. tense, my yes. entire, every muscle rigid. Yes. And then getting to the end and like falling out on the floor weeping. Wow. You know, I remember it very, very clearly. I heard that, that's, that, that happened to you after Beloved. Oh yeah, Be Beloved did me in. Not the first time I read it, because I think the first time I read it, I was too young to really fully yeah. absorb and digest it. You have to read all of her stuff more than you once. You really do. Yeah. The first time I read it, I was either 18 or 19. I was really young. And I was reading it in a class. And I think maybe I was 20, it could have even been the third reading. I was in my early 20s and I kept having to put it down. And then when I finally finished it, I just couldn't get myself together. I think I cried for like four hours. I yeah. couldn't get myself together. Yeah, that happened to me too. With Beloved and also happened to me with um, A Known World, I think it is, by oh, Edward P. Jones. A Known World. I put that book down and uh, yeah, I was, I, I, that did that to me. It wrecks you. There's wrecks two me. books, it's astounding in, in, that, in that sort of, Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, I love talking about this. Okay. <laughs> so as, um, as a writer, writing this mm. first time novel, what is it you wanted the world to know about most? I wanted people to encounter a fully fleshed out black humanity. That is what I wanted. That was what I had hoped for. <laughs> um, and I, which is why I think that the, the, the I keep going back to this whole notion of character, but why it is so important or was so important for me to tunnel in as deeply as I could into these people's yeah. brains yeah. and spirits, yeah. because then because they are just opened out and they're just they become fully human and they have a full range of of their humanity. Yeah. And and I don't think I hope that that when people encounter the book, they do not. They don't sort of encounter a person with an adjective in front of them, but they, meaning a black person, an African-American person, though of course they are that, but what they encounter is a full human being in the way they consider themselves to be fully human. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? We have a lot of trouble understanding people are as human as we are. What I wanted was people to encounter black human beings who are undeniably fully human. Mm -hmm. You did that. Thank you. You know, and you did it from the first page and the first chapter because 
one of the things that I've said using the platform of The Oprah Show and the magazine and my voice in any way that I could, that I've tried to express equally as you are, is that all pain is the same. And that when a mother loses her child in the middle of some country you've never heard of, she feels the same as you feel mm -hmm. when your child is sick. Mm -hmm. She feels the same. And I think we experience that. Yeah. you know, from the first page and the Thank first you, chapter. I, I hope that we do. You did it. Huh. <laughs> you did it. It's also strange because in so many ways, I still think of this book as my word document. <laughs> I, I really do. Like, it's my word document. I have my tea and my sweatpants and my hair is all, you know, and it's my word document. Yeah. Just, just it not I. anymore. No, it's not. No, it's your baby out there in the world. What's your life like after all of this? It's been exhilarating. It's been stunning. I feel sort of permanently stunned, you know, that if I, I'm trying to kind of compose my face because I'm on TV, but really my <laughs> face would just kind of have these like enormous eyes, you know, um, a great deal of gratitude, a great sense of responsibility, you know, I think um, great sense of responsibility. I think um, it, it would seem to me that if one is given a gift like what is happening to this book, that one doesn't get the gift necessarily because one deserves it, but what, but if one receives the gift, you have to go about the business of deserving one it. One does afterwards. get it because one deserves it. I'm sorry, you, <laughs> you must accept it. One, one has gotten it because one deserves it. One has gotten it because one has written a, 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 an extraordinary debut novel, really. Thank you. I know um, that you've read a lot of um, theology. Yes. My interest in theology has very much to do with the fact that I think that one of the most profound ways to, to think about our sort of evolution, the evolution of human thought mm -hmm. is to look at the evolution of our relationship to the divine and what people have said about it and written about it and thought about it. I love what you say on page 236, Hattie believed in God's might, but she didn't believe in his interventions. Hmm. At best, he was indifferent. God wasn't any of her business and she wasn't any of his. Do you think that that's unusual to believe in God's might, not his interventions? I don't think it's unusual. Well, it didn't seem unusual to me. There are not very many bits of Ayana in that book. I think that is one sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to ask you that, but everybody asks that. How, who are you in the book? Exactly. What character is you? I didn't want to do that, but thank you for sharing that. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, the, the bits of my sort of ways of thinking about things slip into people mm -hmm. at, at, at certain points, and that, and that, I think, is one of them. I think... Um, Although it wobbles, my own kind of question of, of, of faith is wobbles back and forth constantly. I don't, I don't think that it is that unusual to think that there is a powerful, mighty being, but that doesn't necessarily have a sort of day-to-day -day interaction. But I, but I think that you, you, I had said to the producers that you're, I think it's Thomas Aquinas that you thought was, had the best theory. Oh, Thomas Aquinas has a really, has some very, very interesting Which is my theory about, too, that God is all life. That God is all life, that, 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 that God, that God is all things. All things. And so that all things are, are sort of, are imbued with, um, with, with the spirit of God and therefore life becomes very sacramental. Yes. And all aspects of life become very sacramental. It's, it's a really fascinating thing and it, it's a fascinating thing too because if, if you think about God being in all things, I grew up in the church, I grew up with a very religious upbringing. And when I sort of had my sort of refusal of the church, which happened when I was around 15 and mm -hmm. I would, was 
abominably behaved. You know, my mother would take me to church and I would sit in the pew muttering about things the minister would say. It was horrible, horrible. And so then she stopped making me go because I was so badly behaved. But um, one of the things I think that was, a, that was a struggle for me then, although perhaps not articulated, but it certainly is now, is that I, I didn't, it, it seemed to me that to be a person of faith meant that I had to deny reason and that I had to, to deny being a rational person. And one of the things that's really interesting about Thomas Aquinas is that if God is in all things, then there is also God in our, in all of our human capacities, mm -hmm. one of which is, of course, reason, right? And so that we right. can approach God in some way also through reason, which is, which is a really, which is a really kind of mind-boggling concept and one that I find really lovely. Uh, I was interviewing Rain Wilson recently mm -hmm. here on Super Soul Sunday, and he said that there's no difference between art and prayer. Hmm. Hmm. And when I finished the 12 tribes of Hattie, mm -hmm. it felt like a big prayer, an offering. Wow. Wow. I think that, I think that experiences, and I'm, I'm not necessarily talking about my own book, but just in the art and prayer thing, I think that encounters with a profound truth or something that is profoundly beautiful does feel prayerful. Yes. I think. You know, it just feels poetic. Music. This feels prayerful. It feels um, intimate. It feels it stirs something inside you that mm. makes you that makes you feel more connected to all, not just the characters, but it makes you feel more human. Mm. So thank you, the Twelve Tribes of Hattie. Oh boy, thank you. Thank it's been you. An honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening.